Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Uh, just a, remember, a reminder that next Sunday, I believe, is Sunday School kickoff, and there's a sign-up sheet in the Breezeway if you, can, if you can sign up for that, because I think we're going to eat after church to kick off Sunday School and have a great time. Um, we are continuing with our study um, based upon 1 Peter chapter 3, which is on the top of your sheet that should be on your table, where Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. And the Greek, you remember, is apologia, from which we get our word apology. And apology has a twofold meaning. One, as here in the text, to defend the Christian faith. Okay, so it's not I'm sorry here. That is a meaning for that English word. But the Greek word means to defend. And so it's translated properly. So Peter exhorts us to defend our faith to anyone who asks. And we are to do it with gentleness and respect. So what we're doing is we're, I'm piggybacking on what the kids learned at the Higher Things Conference in Illinois on apologetics. That is to say the defense of the Christian faith. Now, when you do apologetics or when you defend the Christian faith, you're not doing it to win an argument. What you're doing when people ask you, especially if they're unbelievers or if they're and they might be interested, you're trying to you're trying to break down obstacles or hindrances that are keeping them from coming to church or believing in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to repeat that. You're not we're not learning this stuff so we can win arguments with people. That's the last thing you want to do. What you want to do is if they have objections or if they have concerns, you want to try and knock down those things or things that are blocking them from coming to faith, if you will. That's the goal here. And secondly, we want to show people that Christianity and reason and history are not at odds with each other, generally speaking. In other words, if people say, oh, Christianity is just a bunch of myths. Ah, fables, made up stories. We can say, no, it's not. It's based on facts and history bears that out, archeology, span etc. And you can actually show from reason, if you will, that these things are true. And it's very interesting, we'll look at it here in a, in a little bit, but Paul, if you read Acts 25, 24, Acts 24 and 25, it's very interesting. If we have time, we'll get to it today and I'll make more points on about reason and facts. But here's my, here's my goal this morning is there are many times like uh, there will be people who will say, you know, I, I read the New Testament for the first time in my life. And when I came to the resurrection accounts, it appeared to me that there were discrepancies or worst case scenario, contradictions. <laughs> now I can guarantee you, those of you who are still in high school and if you go to college, and if you take a biblical studies class at a college or a university, even a public university, they offer these classes. I guarantee you that you will be told by the professor that the New, New, the, the New Testament accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts of the resurrections, prove that the Bible is absolutely wrong because there are, there are contradictions and they'll take you to the resurrection accounts. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the resurrection accounts here, just briefly. We're gonna note the supposed discrepancies and contradictions and we will answer them so that you can be <laughs> resourced yeah that's right prepared for this because I tell you what Liam you go to college you're going to encounter this if not already in high school okay same with the derby girls yep same thing okay all right so what I'm, I've titled this 
four accounts of Easter Sunday, but yet there is only, it only is talking about one fact, okay? And it's the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me, based upon what we studied two weeks ago, let's not forget, we learned from 1 Corinthians 15, and of course other parts of scripture, that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is absolutely fundamental to our faith because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is worthless, and Christianity is a fraud, and you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, and have the best life now. So, because the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity, the critics of Christianity immediately go after the resurrection accounts to critique it. So, we look at Matthew 28. It's on your sheet, below the picture. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. So how many angels we got here in Matthew's account? We got one. Keep that in mind. One angel here in this account. Verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. All right, that's Matthew's account. Now, as we, as we continue to read Mark, Luke, and John's account, I want you to remember this. I was telling Nick right before class that I was driving home last night, there was probably a fatal car accident on the interstate near the Hampton exit because there were tons of ambulances, etc. And I saw the car. It didn't look good. Now here's my point. The uh, highway patrol or whoever investigates these accidents uh, interrogates or asks the witnesses what they saw. And let's say for the sake of the argument, there were 15 witnesses that saw that accident last night in the dark. Okay? I can guarantee you that all 15 witnesses will describe the one fact that the car did this and another car did this and that's what happened. But when it comes to some of the minor details, depending on who says it, each person saw, saw one thing that maybe another person didn't see. Or one person wanted to emphasize one fact that the other witness didn't. But they all witnessed the one fact of the what? The car wreck. Now I can guarantee you that the highway patrol doesn't say, well, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this. They're, they're, they don't seem to jive, but they still tell about the one fact. Does, does Highway Patrol decide, okay, I guess there wasn't a car accident? No. Now, you know this, don't you? You know this is how it works. Any of you have been to court, any of you have witnessed or watched a television show about court, you realize this is just a fact of life, that when there are various witnesses to some event, 
Witnesses will give the, the, the one fact of the event, but there will be various details. Some will give details that the others don't. Got that? But because some of the details might not jive, that doesn't mean that event didn't happen. So what's happening here is with the resurrection, you have critics of the New Testament and Christianity will say, oh, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's some discrepancies and contradictions, and therefore the resurrection certainly couldn't have happened. Nonsense, as we will see. Let's go to Mark's account. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the morning of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man. So in Matthew, was angel. Now in Mark, a young man. And so people who read these will say, Yep, see, there you go, contradictions. Oh, can't trust the resurrection. That's what, the, no joke, that's what they'll do. Be prepared, okay? A young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And notice they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So there were, that, the ending of, of verse 8 there, see, there you go, contradictions. Matthew says they went and told the disciples. Mark says they didn't. Now how do you jive that? I'll answer it. Hang on tight. Okay. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, and now it's not just one man, it's... So Matthew, an angel, Mark, one man, Luke, two men. Ah, contradictions! Therefore the resurrection didn't occur. Now again, if you're a highway patrolman and you interview people about an accident, they'll say, you're an idiot if you say that. Just the, the, the event happened. We, the accident happened. Okay? More, I'll just hang on tight, okay? Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now let's look at John's account. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran 
and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that'd be John, of course, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I can't help myself. I've got to make a comment about that. Unlike, unlike children and teenagers and young adults who are still living at home, when they get up out of bed, they just throw all their clothes on the floor. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, took off his burial clothes and folded them neatly and put them in their proper place. <laughs> That's a very interesting detail here. In any event, let's keep going. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels. Okay, so Matthew was one angel. Now we've got two. Oh, contradictions! Therefore, the resurrection couldn't have happened. And I'm not exaggerating. This is precisely how they do it in college classes or elsewhere. Okay? I mean, seriously, they will make fun of you, and they will mock you, and say you are fools to believe these things. Two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And again, I remind you, why do they do these things? Because if you can discredit the resurrection, you discredit Christianity. And that's what their ultimate goal is. Okay. Verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And when he says her name, then she finally realizes who it is. Check it out. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. All right, so those are the four accounts. And I didn't give you all of Luke. You remember in Luke 24, you remember you got the two Emmaus disciples. The one guy's name is Cleopas, whom we believe is our Lord's uncle, the brother of Joseph. Cleopas, and the other disciples not named, they're leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus. Remember that story? Jesus walks along with them. They don't recognize him. They finally recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And then he disappears from their sight. In any event, I didn't, I didn't include that, but you remember that. Now page three. So do the four accounts of our Lord's resurrection via the evangelist contain contradictions? Bart Ehrman, remember two weeks ago when I introduced you to him and I showed a picture of him? He still teaches. He's still popular. You YouTube him. He's probably one of the most popular, most Googled guys on this topic of saying that the resurrection is a farce. 
because of these so-called discrepancies and contradictions. So Bart Ehrman claims that the Gospels are, quote, filled with discrepancies on nearly every detail in their resurrection. Now, that's, that's exaggerating. That's really going. If you think Kuhlman goes over the top, that's over the top. In every detail? Come on. Ehrman contends that we cannot accept the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because the Gospels supposedly contradict one another on the particular details. Ehrman is quite confident that these differences or contradictions will then create doubt about the reliability of the evangelist's account. And so Ehrman then challenges you to read the four Easter stories and then ask these simple questions. He says, ask these questions. Who went to the tomb first? Was the stone rolled away when the women got there? Did the women see one man, one angel, two men, or two angels? Did the women tell the disciples what happened or not? Remember in Mark, they were afraid and didn't tell anybody. Where did the disciples see Jesus? Did they see him only in Galilee or only in Jerusalem? Ehrman's point in asking these questions is that when you see that the gospels supposedly have inconsistencies or that they flat out contradict each other, then you will simply have to admit that their accounts cannot be trusted and that the resurrection of Jesus simply did not take place. Now again, I remind you of how I started. The wreck on the accident last night at Hampton, when the highway patrol interviews all the witnesses, they all witness to the one fact of the accident, but various details will be given. One will include one detail while another didn't. But the highway patrolman then doesn't say, oh, you're contradicting each other, therefore the accident didn't happen. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down here? Do you see how, you see how irrational Bart Ehrman is here? And he's supposedly the expert. Let's keep going. First, I'm going to give you the historical response to Ehrman. Now, I was a history major in college, so this is very important to me. Some of you don't like history. Well, <clears throat> pardon me for saying so. It's time to grow up and like history. <laughs> I say that because I'm a history major. So I'm gonna, that was right directed at my wife. That's right. Now I better run for the hills. Here's my point. If you're a historian and you look at these accounts, you will not come to the Bart Ehrman conclusions. So let's look at this. In the study of history by historians, the truthfulness of a core event or events in historical reports is not endangered when inconsistencies exist in, and this is critical, in marginal details that are of little importance. In other words, to think that apparent conflicts regarding relatively minor points of a story disprove the central fact or facts is doing bad history. And this is especially true when the sources have been shown to contain generally reliable data. Now again, I'm just speaking in general when you study history, whether it's the history of the United States or the history of some other country or some person. So let me illustrate this point by giving you four examples from history. So I'm going to show you that what Ehrman contained, when, he, when, when Bart Ehrman contains you can't trust the resurrection accounts, well, then why don't you apply this to history in general? He won't. Why won't he? Because he hates Christianity and he wants you to leave it. He's a tool of Satan. 
parading around as an angel of light. So, my, again, I'm going to make this point very clear so that you, you go home and you got a headache on this and you'll say, yeah, that's what Kuhlman said. Good. Glad you got a headache. Airman will not, he'll, he'll apply these principles to the New Testament accounts, but he won't apply them to these examples I, I'm going to give you here. So, the Peloponnesian War. Do you remember the Greek historian Thucydides from your social studies classes? Of course you do. Thucydides bothered, was bothered that the written accounts of the Peloponnesian War did not agree with each other in every detail. Now, if you don't know what the Peloponnesian War is, look at the footnote. That was a war in ancient Greece fought between Athens, the city-states Athens, and Sparta. Okay? Now, I'm reading back on the text. This is especially true when the sources have been, pardon me. Um, however, since he served as a general, this is Thucydides, he actually served as a general in the Peloponnesian War. These incredulities could not and did not persuade him to argue that the war never took place or who won the war. Again, I'm gonna say this, if you're not picking up what I'm throwing down here, Thucydides actually participated in the Peloponnesian War. And when there were various histories written about the war, some of the histories had details that seemed to be discrepancies. So did Thucydides, I can't say the Greek name this morning, did he then conclude therefore that the war never took place? Of course not. Okay. Now if you're Bart Ehrman, you would have to conclude that the Peloponnesian War never took place. But he won't apply that standard to this history. So he's a hypocrite. He's a fraud. He's out to destroy Christianity and he'll use any fraud to do it. Okay, let's go with another example. The Great Fire of Rome. There were three historians who wrote about the Great Fire of Rome. I've got their names. Tacitus, Suetonius, and Dio Cassius. And they gave three accounts of this blaze. And guess what? These three historians differ on some intriguing details about the Great Fire. Namely, did Nero order the city to be burned? If so, did he send operatives openly or secretly to set the fire? Did Nero watch Rome burn? And from where did he watch? Or was he 35 miles away when it happened? Now, I'm asking these questions because if you read the, th the three accounts, you're going to get different answers on these little details. Here's the point. Despite the various answers given in the three accounts, no serious historian, especially in the major universities and community colleges in the United States and the world, would deny that Rome actually burned. Bart Ehrman won't apply his standard to this history, but he will to the so-called gospel account. The Titanic, how about this one? You all love the movie The Titanic, especially you ladies. It's one of the, it's a, you know, it's a chick flick. It's a chick flick. It is. That's right, that's right. I'll tell you. Nick, you need to go to the men's clinic. Now again, I remind you, uh, I, this is all in, in good fun. But there's, there is a grain of truth to it. There is a grain of truth to what I'm about ready to say. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. You want to know why men's clinics are so popular today? 
It's because men are smoking so much dope and marijuana and chewing so much dope and marijuana that they get doobie boobies. That's true. It's absolutely true. They, they got to buy a bra. They do. That's one of the reasons why you hear, every, if you listen to the radio, it's 24 7, 365 on going to the men's clinic. And why you've got low T. It's because they, they're all doing marijuana. That's not a joke, it's serious. <laughs> they are. <laughs> well, the wild and woolly Bible class continues with the Titanic. <laughs> now, the survivors of the Titanic, guess what? They gave differing accounts of what happened to the passenger liner. For example, some said the Titanic broke in two pieces. Others said it remained intact. Strange, isn't it? And yet, no historian, including Bart Ehrman, denies that the Titanic sank. The assassination of John F. Kennedy. You all know, if you've been paying attention, especially lately, you've got people saying that the Warren Report was totally false. So on the one hand, the Warren Report came out and said this is what happened. And now you've got people today saying the Warren Report is a joke. It was all a setup. It's all a lie. In fact, the CIA was in on it. And that uh, who was the guy that got uh, framed or who was the one that got blamed for the assassination? I forget his name. Yeah, Wall Oswald, right? Lee Harvey Oswald, that's right. They'll say that he was a CIA operative. Okay? So you get various conflicting details about the assassination itself. And yet, and yet, no one denies that John F. Kennedy was murdered, despite details of the account differing. Get what I'm doing? Any questions about what I just did here? Historically speaking. Okay, the point is, is if you're going to be consistent with these four examples I just gave you, then you have to apply the same thing historically to the four gospel accounts. So let's back up to Ehrman. I'm reading again. Almost every discrepancy in these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that he raises pertain not to essential things like the resurrection, but to peripheral details. The core of each account lines up remarkably well with the others, and that strengthens their credibility regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Now, quick side note. If the gospel accounts of the resurrection were exactly the same in every little detail, one then could argue for a conspiracy between the four evangelists. All you have to do is ask homicide investigators when they question suspects and accomplices. If they all agree in every minute detail, something is afoot. In other words, that's a sure sign of collusion and lying going on. So you remember Seinfeld? When George and Elaine try to tell a lie and they meet at Monk's coffee shop and they try to get their story straight, their lie, and they've gotta be exact in every little detail. And then when Susan finds a discrepancy in the detail, oh, she, now she knows they're lying. Sorry, can't help myself. <laughs> Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Is this helpful for you? I hope. All right, let's keep going then. 
So reconciling the differences, let's reconcile those. First, you need to define the terms. Ehrman and many others claim that the four accounts contradict each other. That's a key word that they use. And that, that, is, that, is, that word is chosen on purpose. Okay, so what is a contradiction? That's the next paragraph. Narrowly speaking, a contradiction happens when two or more statements of fact produce mutually exclusive conclusions. Or to paraphrase the Greek philosopher Aristotle, a contradiction is saying that something both is the case and is not the case at the same time. That's a contradiction. I'll say more about that with the Gospels in just a second. So in the resurrection accounts, it would be a very serious problem if, for example, one account said the women went to the tomb of Jesus on Sunday and saw him there, while another report explicitly said no women went to the tomb on that day and that they never saw him. But you don't have that. See, that's a contradiction. The Gospels don't do that. This would be an irreconcilable difference, namely, that's a contradiction. And again, we don't find those in the resurrection accounts. Now, just for the sake of argument, we did find such an egregious difference in the gospel. If, if we did, if we did find this, it would not mean that both claims are necessarily false. One could be right and the other wrong. I'm just simply saying, for the sake of the argument, if there were, in fact, in fact major contradictions in, in these accounts, well, then one has to be right and one has to be wrong. They both can't be wrong. That's the point. Okay. <clears throat> Next paragraph, bottom page four. However, our erudite, <clears throat> that's in air quotes, erudite, that means the smart, Erudite means smart. I'd like to use another term from my, from my Wyoming days, but I'll keep it rated G. Our erudite Professor Ehrman categorically contends that because there are differences between the gospel accounts, then none of them are correct. So permit me another side note. If we apply the professor's logic to his own reporting of when he fell away from the Christian faith, then he's in big trouble too. In other words, Let's see if Ehrman applies the same standard to his own life. Guess what? He doesn't. Check it out. See, I love doing this to people. Have you noticed that people who, people who say you need to be more loving, I'm speaking in general here, people who say you need to be more loving are probably the most loveless people on the face of the earth and the most hateful people. That's what I've discovered as a pastor. This is Ehrman, same thing. So in one of his books, the professor tells us about his strong Christian beliefs. And notice he says he had strong Christian beliefs all throughout graduate school and that he only started to lose his faith sometime after graduate school. Got that? So he's a believer, goes to graduate school, and then he's, once he's out of graduate school, he doesn't, he's no longer a believer. Got that? All right, let's keep going. Page five. However, in another account of Ehrman, he claims that the falling away started in graduate school. <laughs> contradiction, contradiction. Therefore, you're not true, Bart Ehrman. Right? Let's apply his standard to his own life. Well, 
because there are differences in his accounts. Well, guess what? If you use Ehrman's standard, then neither one of his accounts are true because that's the standard he applies to the four Gospels. But again, he doesn't do that. Why not? Because he wants to destroy Christianity as a tool of Satan, as an angel of light. So if that standard's good enough for the Gospels, then to be consistent, it has to be applicable to his own life story, which he won't do, of course. Now let's do one more for good measure. I can't help myself because I really do delight in showing that Ehrman is not to be trusted. On the one hand, Ehrman states that his faith, his Christian faith, had been based completely on a certain view of the Bible, such as the more that he studied it, the less he believed. However, on the other hand, the professor says, but the problems of the Bible are not what led me to leave the faith. All right, so which is it, professor? Did Ehrman lose his Christian faith during grad school or after? Was it because of his view of the Bible changed or not? Again, if we follow his own line of reasoning regarding the Gospels and apply it to his own story, we have to reject both of his accounts as totally unreliable. Okay, do you understand what I just did here? Are there any questions? Yes. Yes, please. Be careful now. See, he, he remembers you wearing a certain dress that you didn't really wear. Right? And dittos, you remember him wearing some yeah. kind of tux that he yeah. really didn't wear. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, Your points will take. at the front of the church, I am coming down the aisle, we're in the same situation. Yep, that's right. Just seeing things at a different, and it's an emotional time. That's right. Know? He wasn't crying, but I was. That's exactly and, you know, right. So, Yep. I mean, Ehrman's trying to dispute everything right. based on what he thinks is fact, but you can't take out the emotional element That's right. of the situation. So just in case you didn't hear, this is a brilliant point that Kimberly just made. Is that, for example, when, someone, when a couple gets married, this is an emotional time in their lives. And so when it's all said and done, and maybe a year or two after they got married and they review what happened, they might even watch the video. And they may say, my goodness, that really happened? I didn't remember it that way. I said I do. Yeah, I said I do. <laughs> I really did say that? Yeah. And, this is, and again, with the gospel accounts of the resurrection, this is a very emotional time. And so your point is well taken. And Ehrman doesn't take these things into account. And that's just an ordinary life. By the way, do you remember I talked about the Scottish philosopher David Hume? And David Hume just categorically denies that, that miracles can't happen. Why not? Because that would defy the laws of nature. All right, now I'm going to show you. I'm going to defy the laws of nature right now. There's going to be a miracle right before your eyes. So you all know the law of gravity, don't you? Okay, watch this. I just defied the law of gravity by picking up this marker, a miracle. I'm holding it, it's not falling. But according to David Hume, that, that's impossible, that can't happen. Because this, this marker should fall to the ground 
Every time, there can be no exception. Guess what, I just defied your law of nature, buddy. Now that's a crass and a ridiculous example. But you see, okay, all right. All right, let's go on. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of our study today, as if you thought we already are. We have it, here's the meat and potatoes right here. Let's then address the alleged contradictions or discrepancies in the resurrection accounts offered by airmen. Number one, he wants you to ask who went to the tomb first. Well, the names of the women given by Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not all the same. But Luke 24 verse 10 also notes that there was a group of women. And I've got it there again to remind you. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them. And I emphasize that for, for, for the sake of making the point. So here's the point. Each author then simply chose to name some and not others. John only names Mary Magdalene, but her words indicate others were with her when she said, we do not know where they laid him. She didn't say, I don't, we don't, because guess what? There were other women with him, or with her, pardon me, and John only includes her name in the account. Not denying that there were other women, but he's just saying, here's my point. I'm just making this point. And again, so these, this doesn't mean that the resurrection didn't happen, like Airman contends. Number two, was the stone rolled away when the women arrived? Now Mark, Luke, and John say the stone was rolled away by the time they arrived. Matthew, however, first writes that the women went to the tomb, Matthew 28, 1, and then says an angel descended and rolled it away in verse 2. A careful reading of Matthew's wording, however, reveals that he does not claim the women were present for that event. Instead, Matthew is just simply explaining what had already happened before they arrived. Let me give you another example from Scripture. Um, so you read Matthew verses 1 through 2, and if you're like Airman, you conclude, okay, therefore when the ladies arrived, the stone had not been rolled away. Well, Matthew's not necessarily giving a chronological thing. The stone had already been rolled away. He's just describing that the angel rolled it away. Okay, now, so here's an example from Scripture. When you read, for example, First and Second Samuel, when you read the accounts of David, Samuel, when he writes his accounts of King David, he doesn't give them all in histori in, in not, pardon me, I misspoke there, in chronological order. He will talk about one part of, of David's life in one chapter that may have happened later, and then in another chapter, he'll talk about another event in David's life that happened earlier. And if you're doing, if you're thinking simply linear time, one thing happens after another. When you read 1 Samuel, sometimes you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. That can't be. Well, just remember, that's not what he's doing. And so similarly here. Number three, <coughs> did they see one man, two men, one angel, two angels? The answer here is twofold. First, in the Bible, and maybe you didn't know this, so this is why I'm telling you this. In the Bible, angels are sometimes referred to as men, like in Daniel 9 and in Acts 1.10. And Luke uses the terms, namely angels or angel and man or men, interchangeably in Luke 24.4 and Luke 24.23. The point is, is that when you read those two verses in chapter 24 of Luke, 
Luke will describe, describe the angel or angels as man and angel, same creature. Because sometimes they, they take on the appearance of a... Okay. Acts 10 does the same thing in verses 3, 22, and 30. And an extra biblical reference is in Tobit. And those are the chapters and verses. So all I'm trying to do is show you from Scripture and even extra biblical uh, uh, writings that this is not uncommon to refer to, as, to an angel as a, quote, man. So these are not contradictions. Are you following this? All right, let's keep going. Second, since firsthand testimony was used, there is no reason to think all the eyewitnesses mentioned or even saw both angels. Why do I say this? Well, I'm quoting a man by the name of Wallace here. A lot depends on where, where a witness is located in relationship to the action. We've also got to consider the personal experiences and interests that cause some witnesses to focus on one aspect of the event and some to focus on another. So again, to harp on the accident at the exit at Hampton last night, when the highway patrol would interview the witnesses, one witness focused on one particular aspect of the accident, whereas another witness focused on another particular part of the accident. And you don't automatically say, oh, okay, the accident didn't happen then. This is all that the gospel writers are doing. Some are honing in on certain things that the other one didn't. All right, page six. In addition then, and I, again, I'm harping on this so that you get the point. Eyewitness reports are often shaped by the specific questions being asked of them. In other words, how does the highway patrol ask the question? That may depend on the answer. The question they ask will give you an answer, and he may ask a different question to another witness and get a, okay? And the individual concerns of each gospel author may also account for why some omitted the second angel. But since none of them say there was only one angel, there's no contradiction here. Four, did the women tell the disciples what happened or not? Mark 16, 8 says the women fled the tomb and said nothing to anyone. Whereas in the other gospels, the women report what they saw and heard. Now this apparent disagreement has generated several explanations but I would argue a fairly simple one is most likely here, and it's this. When Mark says they said nothing to anyone, this is very similar to what Jesus says in Mark 1, verse 44. Namely, after Jesus healed a leper, Jesus sternly warned the healed man, see that you say nothing to no one, but go show yourself to the priest. So again, see that you say nothing to no one. That's a double negative. Bad translation, in any event, should be say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Now this implies that the healed leper, the man, was to tell the priest first before telling others about the good news. And I would argue that's the same thing happening here in Mark's gospel. The women of the tomb were ordered by the angel to tell the disciples of the Lord's resurrection. Therefore, they said nothing to anyone along the way, but they shared the good news of Easter with the disciples first. So just like the leper went and told the priest first and then would tell others, so the ladies would then tell the disciples before they'd tell anybody else. 
Number five, where did the disciples see Jesus? Only in Galilee or only in Jerusalem? Now the way Professor Ehrman poses the question makes it easy to solve. To be sure, Matthew and Luke only make mention of Jesus' appearances in Galilee and Jerusalem respectfully. Yet nothing in their wording excludes the possibility that Jesus also appeared elsewhere. For example, in Luke 24, at Emmaus. It bears repeating that each evangelist focused on select information for the sake of their particular narratives. Now, not everyone's going to be satisfied with uh, all these pro proposed solutions that I've given you today. Okay, Just be, be prepared. So if you offer these things to people who ask, be prepared. They'll say, oh, that's just, that's just, I can't buy it. They may not buy it. However, I would contend they are enough to demonstrate what? That the apparent conflicts, or Ehrman's word, contradictions, are not as impossible to reconcile as he contends. Instead, I would argue these are just simply differences, not contradictions, each of which involves minor points of secondary importance. But it doesn't mean the event didn't happen. Now, some additional things to consider here real quickly here in the few minutes we've got. The four Gospels are the best evidence of our Lord's resurrection. Now, next week, what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to, um, I'm going to show you how people will attack the New Testament itself as a whole and say, lots of contradictions in the New Testament, lots of contradictions in the New Testament, therefore you can't rely on the, the documents. Okay? We're going to counter that next week. Be prepared for that. That's going to joyfully blow your mind. The four Gospels are the best evidence. They are, in their own unique ways, credible biographies of Jesus written by who? This is very important. If you're a study, if you study history, you want to go to the eyewitnesses or companions of the eyewitnesses or maybe first generation after the eyewitnesses, if you will. Um, look at footnote four. This is really critical. Eyewitness testimony is critical in a court of law. And this is my point. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give facts because they eyewitnessed it, or in Luke's case, Luke actually interviewed the eyewitnesses. The, in other words, the gospel accounts would stand in a court of law. Let me put it to you another way. Let's pretend that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and were on trial about what they wrote. And the judge asks, where did you get this information in your gospel accounts? And if all four of the evangelists said this, well, you know, we, we talked to people who were a thousand years removed from the events. And then we talked to people 1,500 years after the events occurred. You know what the judge would do? He'd throw it out. He'd say, that's hearsay. We don't have hearsay in my court. Unless, of course, you're certain appointees from certain presidents, you know, of course. But uh, you understand my point? Judges who do their work faithfully would throw that out of court. But eyewitnesses count? Bring it on. I want to hear it. That's what they're up to when they write their Gospels. Let me continue with this uh, footnote. So John and Matthew were literally our Lord's disciples. They were with him in his ministry. Mark, he probably had much less contact with Jesus as he appears to have been young and living in Jerusalem at the time. You remember when Jesus is arrested 
And there's a young man who flees away naked. Remember that? That's probably Mark. Okay. But he wasn't, he wasn't called by Jesus like Matthew, uh, like Jesus called Matthew and John. Okay. Where did Mark learn about what he wrote about in his gospel? Well, from Peter. He learned it from an apostle when Peter was in Rome. Okay. And first and second Peter would have been it. Luke is a Gentile, perhaps a native of Antioch, and converted during Paul and Barnabas's work there in the 40s, the year of our Lord. Luke, as I remind you again, Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. And I would contend one of the biggest eyewitnesses that Luke probably interviewed was Mary, the mother of our Lord. Because Luke includes the infancy narratives that the other gospels don't include. Okay? In addition, Luke had considerable contact with Paul and Silas. He stayed several days with Philip and most likely spent two years in Palestine while Paul was in prison at Caesarea. All right, back to page six there, that last paragraph. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John provide a historian a great detail of detail regarding the life of Jesus as well as his appearing to his disciples three days after his death. The evangelists even include data that should have been excluded especially if they were trying to persuade a first century audience of something that didn't happen. For example, and this is going to blow your minds, all four evangelists describe women as the first to visit the empty tomb and see the resurrected Jesus. This is incredible. Why? Because in their, their immediate context, what I mean by that is in the days in which they lived, a woman's testimony was regarded as totally irrelevant and unreliable. And yet the evangelists still included the women's witness. Why did they do that? Because it was the truth. F.F. <laughs> F. Bruce, if you don't know that name, get to know that name. The renowned Scottish New Testament scholar reminds us that the evangelists could not afford to risk inaccuracies not to speak of willful manipulation of the facts, which would be at once exposed by those who would be only glad to do so. The hostility that Christianity faced almost immediately all but guarantees that the evangelists did not invent the story of Jesus' resurrection. After all, both the Jewish and Roman officials in the first century Jerusalem had the means, they had the motive, and they had every opportunity to debunk the resurrection of Jesus. You can read uh, the next paragraph on your own. Go to the last paragraph on page seven because I'm running out of time. And given that the resurrection of Jesus is the heart and soul of Christianity from the very beginning and that the church began her preaching in and around Jerusalem, it is extraordinary that the numerous enemies of Jesus and Christianity did not simply produce the corpse of Jesus to shut Christianity down. Again, they had ample opportunity. They had the ability to do it, especially when the apostles on many occasions were in their custody, in jail, arrested by these people. Now page eight, quickly. If you've never read Acts 26, I beg you to do so. I'll give you the point here real quickly. Paul is on trial. He stands before King Agrippa and Bernice. You can read about those two in the footnote, as well as Festus. He's before the authorities. 
and he was given permission to speak. Now notice how Paul talks. Paul stretched out his hand, made his, there it is, there's the word, his defense of his faith in Christ. And he said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. So when people ask you about your faith, he did it. He was glad to do it. Paul's defense included the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, who according to scripture suffered and rose from the dead. Now Festus considered Paul to be out of his mind. Believe me, when you talk to people today about Jesus, they'll say, you're, you're crazy. You're a cult. I'm not joking. The people, generally speaking, in authority today in our country think that we are a cult and we need to be eliminated. You are out of your mind. Well, he said this, Paul, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. That's Acts 26, 24, to which Paul responded. And here's where we'll close. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true, and now notice how he talks, true and rational words. For the king Agrippa knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Paul is saying, everybody knows about what happened, and so do you. These are first generation. You understand this? Okay. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, a Christian, except for my chains, namely a prisoner. Please note Paul doesn't do the Mormon shtick when he gives his defense or apology. Namely, I know it's true because I have a burning in the bosom. Paul's Christian faith isn't some irrational stab in the dark or an irrational leap of faith. Instead, Paul speaks true and rational words of objective events, namely Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, and that people actually saw or heard about things that can actually be investigated rationally and historically and then found to be true. Um, I want to finish the rest of this next week, and then I'm going to do the what I mentioned earlier with you. Do you have any final questions or concerns? Well, again, I hope this was somewhat helpful for you. Uh, please take these home, bring them back, or just leave them here. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer.